Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Architecture, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Nushel De Silva, and I am absolutely delighted to be joined by Craig Robertson, who is an Associate Professor of Media Studies at Northeastern University, where he researches histories of paperwork, information technologies, identification documents, and surveillance. We will be talking about his new book, The Filing Cabinet, A Vertical History of Information, published by the University of Minnesota Press in 2021. Welcome, Craig, and thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you for the invitation. Um, I'm really excited and intrigued to be here in the um, architecture part of the New Books Network. Yes, and before I begin, I just want to um, note that while this might seem a bit of an unusual book to be featured on New Books in Architecture, I personally was very struck by the wide-ranging architectural implications of the filing cabinet for the office, for the home, for verticality itself, um, and how that is valued in the field, all of which I found really instructive as an architectural historian. Uh, also, in looking at the filing cabinet, you really unpack the material and spatial processes of storage itself. And I thought it really spoke so well to other recent books that we've been seeing in architectural history on, say, uh, logistics or warehousing and a more general turn in the field to thinking critically about infrastructural and not just monumental architectural forms. So I'm really delighted to have you with us today. Could you begin uh, by telling us a little bit about yourself and your background, how you came to become a media historian? Well, yes. So um, the media part of that is actually, that's what got me out of New Zealand, where I grew up, to the United States. I came to the United States in the mid-1990s because I wanted to study the cultural implications of alternative music, or what is often called college college rock um, in the United States. And after a couple of years, that sort of reached a dead end. So I took a break from graduate school, traveled and worked for a few years, and then returned to the Institute of Communications Research at the University of Illinois, which is a fantastic interdisciplinary space. So that allowed me, with under their broad umbrella of communications and media studies, to sort of develop my um, research interests and agenda. And part of that involved going back to my undergraduate degree in New Zealand, which was a degree in history, um, and thinking about media and communication, not only historically, but very broadly. So I ended up writing a dissertation uh, on the history of the passport. Um, And therefore, without really planning it, suddenly the medium that I started to study as a media studies scholar or a media historian was paper. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm really sort of on the subject of paper. I'm really fascinated by histories of objects and systems that are so seemingly banal that the way that they organize the whole world is often very much overlooked And it's so easy to overlook the filing cabinet until, of course, one has to deal with quantities of unsystematized and uncategorized paper, as you say. And this is something that you encountered when you were doing research for your previous book, 
um, so on the passport. So how did that very uh, visceral experience as a researcher lead you to write about filing cabinets in this book? Yeah, I was when I was studying my um, sorry when I was doing research for the passport. I found myself at National Archives in the United States, and I was looking through nineteenth-century correspondence between the State Department and consuls and embassies. And this is all actually stored on microfilm, but the original is comes from these bound, unindexed volumes. So what you had was just in chronological order, letter after letter after letter, bound in the office for Madrid, for example. Um, And then the outgoing letters, I should say, from the State Department were bound in a different volume. And this made research really, really hard to do. So I would sort of alternate just between randomly pulling out, um, (laughs) you know, a, a microfilm reel and putting it on, or we're Sometimes I was able to use indexes, say, from the New York Times when those started. And if there was some Mm. controversy around a passport, I had some rough dates and I could kind of look. But it was really time consuming, very unproductive and was eating away at the limited amount of time as a graduate student that I was able to afford um, uh, to do research at the National Archives. And then I arrived at 1906, and in 1906, the State Department introduced a numerical filing system. So all of a sudden, all the correspondence around passports for any given consular office and within the State Department had the same number. Each case was given a particular you know, decimal number um, within that. So my research just instantly became so much easier, and that was the experience when I really thought, wow, the introduction of numerical filing, the introduction of filing cabinets, right, really Mm -hmm. changed how people organized paper and organized information and approached information. And so that was something that I thought, this is curious. And when I finally found the time to kind of explore this a little more because it was an experience that really stuck with me. What I discovered was that, first of all, I was not alone in my excitement at the arrival of numerical filing. This was a very big deal in the early 20th century. But what I discovered was that when people talked about that at that time, they framed it as a move from the bound book to (laughs) the filing cabinet. So all of a sudden, what I w- when I was thinking, oh, there's something here in the history of classification, what happened is suddenly I found myself writing about the history of storage, right, and the history of storage mm-hmm. technologies. And then, you know, within that context, coming out of media studies, you know, I understand, right, technology is not neutral, that technology is informed by power dynamics, and these shape the issues that are prioritized as problems to be solved by technology, and they also therefore shape the technological solutions. And so I think the argument, therefore, that storage technologies are not neutral is particularly important Mm -hmm. when the object being stored is information. Absolutely. Um, And it's, yeah, this is quite fabulous how this experience of of moving from tedium, uh, research (laughs) tedium, to, to ease of research led you to a whole other book. Uh, and I want to now dig into a little, uh, dig a little bit into the subtitle of your book, A Vertical 
history of information. So you use this term very deliberately throughout the book uh, to discuss the very particular vertical logic of storage that's embodied in the filing cabinet. And you touched on this a little bit in your previous answer, but if you could talk a little bit more about this, how exactly did the filing cabinet change in a very material way the relationship between paper and knowledge? So how did what did it change or make possible for information storage and retrieval? How was it different from the bound books that you mentioned in as you were talking about um, uh, your, your research experience? How, how was it different from these bound books that were previously used in offices? And, and what made it so modern? What made it so different? Yes, yeah, so what the really innovative thing about the vertical filing cabinet, and it's something I think we don't necessarily think of, even if we do pause to think about it today, is that it completely changed how loose paper was stored. Mm -hmm. And what it did was it allowed loose paper to be stored on its edge, right? Because if you think about it, if you grab a piece of unbound paper now, it can't stand up on its long edge or even its short edge on its own. So that's the incredibly innovative move of the vertical filing cabinet, right? Because with the right size drawers, with um, what we call call follower blocks or compressors, and then with the manila folders themselves that paper was stored in, all of this allowed paper to be stored on its long edge, right? And so loose paper vertically stored, right, in that way on its long edge is easier to access than loose paper that was stored flat because we I was mentioning bound books, but you still had loose paper that wasn't bound, but it tended to be stored um, in piles, right? So that's mm. it's harder to access the individual sheet of paper compared to when it's um, on its long edge. And so that, in terms of paper storage, right, that's the major innovation. Um, and as I was suggesting when I was talking about the State Department records, um, What this then allows you to do is to access knowledge in more discrete amounts. Um, And Mm -hmm. my argument in the book is that this instrumental form of knowledge, right, the ability to access in a very sort of easy way knowledge um, produces discrete and smaller, if you like, pieces of knowledge. And those pieces of knowledge came to be called information. Now, the word information obviously had existed prior to the nineteenth, um, prior to the late nineteenth, early twentieth century. But in the previous like hundred years or so, it had moved um, from a process where information used to refer to the act of being informed to being educated to beca- to become a thing that could be possessed, retrieved, and circulated. So the filing cabinet didn't invent this idea of information. Right, but it became through manila folders, through the storage of loose paper, it became an important way to think about information as something discrete and particular, right? And um, and this made it very different from the way information was approached when it was on pages that were bound in books, right? Which that bound mm-hmm. volume creates this, or it puts a particular bit of a letter, some correspondence within a broader context, the context of what was going on in the consular office in London in 1873. Now, rather than having that broader context, what you have is through the technology of the manila folder and the filing cabinet, you have all the correspondence around one particular issue brought together. 
Um, so that, you know, so that is the sort of innovation that the vertical filing cabinet brought. And in terms of that idea of vertical history, as I'm sure we'll discuss um, later on in this interview, the sub the subtitle of the book is also playing off that idea of vertical paper storing on its edge to mm-hmm. think about vertical history as a history that recognizes hierarchies and and power dynamics, right? So therefore the vertical history of information is a history of information that doesn't understand it as some inert and neutral um, sort of object, but rather as something that is historic, has historical specificity. Absolutely. And I I really want to dig into these questions of... um, the way in which information is stored in these smaller discrete blocks and and the ways in which that plays to power. Uh, But right now I want to dig a little bit more into this question of very material verticality, uh, because again, this is the new books in architecture network. So I want to draw attention to some of the images that you have in your book that were particularly striking for me as an architectural historian, you ju- there are these promotional images that you show that juxtapose filing cabinets with skyscrapers. And this, as I understand it, um, on the part of um, the, the purveyors of these filing cabinets, it seems to underscore, underscore a view that equates height and verticality with economic efficiency. And, and you talk a little bit about, you talked a little bit about this as well, uh, when you talked about how easy it was to retrieve these loose sheets of paper in a way that wasn't possible with the, the bound books. But could you talk a little bit more about some of the ways in which the filing cabinets were positioned spatially as aligning with or working together with the purported efficiency of the skyscraper as well as the other, as well as other forms of efficient office furniture. Yeah, thanks. That's a great question. And um, I, when I was as I was doing my research, it, it sort of I started to realize right that the period I'm looking at, which is basically the first half of the 20th century, um, that's the arrival of corporations, right, of large scale production. Well people have called managerial capitalism or corporate capitalism. And what I realized is that this really depended on the vertical, right? It really depended on an understanding of verticality in different registers, right? But the key point was that the the vertical becomes key, um, as you pointed out, to ideas of efficiency and productivity that define this era. So I argue in the book that in this era, like capitalism has what I call a a vertical bias, right? Not only in storage, such as filing cabinets and skyscrapers, but also even like outside of the office completely, we have the emergence of billboards and things like this. But also um, we have the idea integral to the development of um, corporate capitalism, which is vertical integration, right? What we now call vertical integration, the combining of multiple stages of production in one company. We also have the emergence of management, the management hierarchy, and with that, the corporate ladder, right? So like I said, in, in different registers, I see the vertical as a way that is a way that is the vertical is considered a way to achieve efficiency, right? Where efficiency in the early 20th century is the idea that breaking things down into into component parts, into as smaller, small parts uh, makes it, makes them easier to manage and control. And what happens is that these small parts 
are then contained increasingly within, if you like, a vertical structure. Right. So in the case of the skyscraper and the filing cabinet, um, what we really see here is that efficiency is linked to the idea of flow, right? The movement of people and paper and through the combination of those two, the movement of information. Um, and there's a great quote from one of the um, office equipment efficiency boosters, Elsie Walker, from a company called Shaw Walker. Um, and he has this great line where he says, every time a piece of paper stops, a dollar is resting, right? And so, you know, this is where this, as I said, this idea of flow and efficiency is really important. And the skyscraper and the filing cabinet facilitate that flow, right? They force activities, in the case of the skyscraper, work or objects, in the case of the filing cabinet paper, they force activities and objects into designated spaces, which makes it easier to manage flow, right? So in terms of the skyscraper, I would argue, you know, the skyscraper exists to contain the repetition of offices, the development of... Um, of offices, particularly within you know, within the model of the skyscraper, is all designed about you know the movement of people from standardized from or within standardized spaces, um, and so we have within the filing cabinet. I mean, we have within the skyscraper the sort of organization of um, horizontal la layers, floors, or in the um, filing cabinet, horizontal layers of drawers, right? And right. so, in all of this, right, we. In all of this, um, what's going on is that verticality, right, is subordinating parts to a whole. And so it's in that sense, I would argue, that height and verticality are equated with economic efficiency. And then as often as the case, often was the case in my research, having struggled my way through this and thinking about this, I would then come across, you know, a quote from uh, office management expert that just encapsulated it um, in, you know, very succinctly. So we have um, William Leffingwell, who was sort of the founding figure of what was known as scientific office management. And um, he has this line in one of his textbooks where he says, the introduction of the vertical filing cabinet marked the utilization of a great efficiency principle, that there is always room for more growth in a vertical rather than a horizontal direction. Yeah, yeah, I, I can see that being a uh, the a driving force um, in sort of both structures, large and small. And it seemed as though a lot of, you know, as you say, a lot of this efficiency seems to be about dividing things up very, um, in a very controlled manner, or rather controlling through the dividing up of things into very small components. And part of that is the gendered division of labor, a very sort of strictly demarcating um, gender roles, what women and men could or could not do. And some of some of the promotional materials in your book very clearly demarcate this, this gendered relationship between, um, or this gendered division of labor in the workplace, what women could do versus what was the purview of men in the office. And uh, I wondered if you could talk a little bit about how the filing cabinets forms of information storage and retrieval were used to keep people in their quote-unquote place. Yeah, so um, as your question sort of implies, uh, I and mean, I think it's, um, but I want to make explicit, right, is that um, labor is always situated or work is always situated in time and place, 
right? And in the case of filing, which is a new form of labor associated with the filing cabinet, or I should say filing gets redefined in relationship to the filing cabinet, um, it's situated, uh, as you said, in the capitalist values of efficiency and productivity. But as you also noted in your question and the way you framed the question, these values are highly gendered, raced, and classed, right? Mm -hmm. And so what we have here basically is that efficiency depends upon this gendered division of labor. Efficiency depends upon the cheap labor of women, right? And so the arrival of women as workers is one of the things that defined the modern office, right? That made it very different from the offices that preceded it, particularly those in the 19th century. Um, Women had worked in offices, of course, prior to the 20th century, but not in the numbers that they did. Um, as the 20th century began. And this is because women entered the office to take on and do very specialized tasks. So again, in the name of efficiency, in the because the thing that is normally broken up in the name of efficiency, broken up into small pieces is labor, right? So in the office, that meant that the 19th, the work of the 19th century male clerk got broken down into all these specialized tasks and tasks that leaned much more towards what was thought of as manual labor. Those became the tasks that were assigned to women. Right, So women arrived in offices, therefore, to assist men. So in that sense, they occupied the same place that society gave their work at home. Right, they, The work of women at home was to maintain a house, right, to assist a man, right, to assist right. the family. Um, and so filing and other low-level office work, including secretarial work, was understood to be feminine work. So to put it really crudely or as simply as the ads you alluded to put it, men did the thinking in the office and women cared for the office, right? So in this case, they ensured men had what was needed for them. And in language of many of the ads, they cared for the files. And this division is really clearly seen in advertisements, which made clear that filing was a task that was suited to women and it was a task that did not require thought. So we can see this in two ways, in, in, in two kind of sets of advertisements. One involves a male executive who's working. And in many cases, the male executive is talking on the phone. And while he's talking on the phone, he's reaching into a file drawer in his desk and retrieving a file and not having to think about it. So an ad for what was called an efficiency desk um, captured this um, with a slogan that said something like, each compartment should represent a fixed place. This is each compartment in the drawer so that the hand of the executive will reach automatically for the desired records without interrupting the continuity of brain action. Right. So again, here, mm-hmm. so the man can do this without without having to think. Right. Anyone can do this without having to think. So when you have so many records and so many documents that they can't be contained in the desk of a male executive, they're in a filing cabinet and there's no way, you know, a man is going to do that kind of work. Right. That would be a waste quote unquote, of a man's natural abilities, rather it's suited to the natural abilities of a woman. So it's work that doesn't require thought and it's work that requires the handling of paper, right? And it's very much understood in this period, all these changes, I should say, in this period, changes in work are naturalized through this idea that women have nimble fingers, right? So you have this, um, you have 
employers asking women, you know, do you play the piano? Do you knit? Do you crochet? Do you sew? Or any other kind of work that would allow her to imp- have improved her natural ability, the natural speed, if you like, of her fingers. And this gets captured in ads where in showcasing, right, the the divisions in a file drawer and showcasing the tabs and the uh, manila folders that break up paper, um, the ads sort of have close-up drawings of an open drawer, and sometimes they include the disembodied hands of a female file clerk reaching in. And obviously the constraints of the advertisement mean that you can't show the full body of the woman, but therefore what it also shows is this sort of ideal mode of labor, right? That you don't need to think, right? You just need Mm -hmm. hands to retrieve these papers because the file cabinet drawer is doing all the thinking for you, right? You know, in that sense, you know, the hand is often positioned as an extension of the body, the way the body and the mind makes contact with the world, right? You reach out and you grasp and touch, and there's a process of choice and deliberation about where you're reaching out or where you're touching, but what the ad is suggesting here is that this, that in the case of filing, right, and gathering information, that choice is transferred to the predetermined pathways of the file cabinet drawer, right? So there's no connection to body and mind, right? And so right. therefore, and so therefore, um, going back to the question you asked several minutes ago, um, you know, this is the way in which. Um, we can help, we can understand how through filing the emergence of a very particular gendered division of labor that helps define and constitute the modern office. Yeah, and it really seems, you know, from from these promotional materials that they're really trying to manage or I, I don't know what the right word for this is, push back on or resist or, you know, work with some really significant upheavals that are happening in the office in terms of uh, an influx of women coming in. And they're sort of uh, in, in, in truly mind-boggling ways, in some, in some ways, objectifying, um, well, reducing women to objects. The, 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 the picture of the hand, for example, another one that really struck me was that image that you showed of um, a young girl opening uh, one of the filing cabinet drawers with with a string, sort of infantilizing women in some ways as well. Like you know, the idea being that a small child can open this this drawer, uh, and and they're quite powerful and and it's disturbing images in some oh, ways. No, they are. I mean, that's one of those things where you end up laughing at them both yeah. because anachronistically they're funny, but also you kind of have to laugh at them you know before you cry in some ways you know at them and and um and I think as probably has been made clear already um really you know this so much of my argument um depends in some ways and is really helped by these images so I I encourage people to go out and buy the book and and see these wonderful images um and really see um that I'm not making this stuff up you know, I mean, it's, yeah, it's yeah. there in some ways as low-hanging fruit. But but thanks for bringing up that uh, the the image of the young girl with the thread of cotton opening the file drawer. So that that's an ad um, that brings actually together a number of the questions you've already asked, right? Um, mm-hmm. So it comes from a company called Shaw Walker. We met Mr. Walker earlier with his, you know, every time a piece of paper stops, a dollar is resting. Um mm-hmm. 
So Shaw Walker had this campaign called Built Like a Skyscraper. So they were one of the companies that really went for the comparison between the filing cabinet and the skyscraper. But within this, right, within this um, campaign, their, their, their signature image was a drawing of a man in a suit jumping into an open file drawer um, in a filing cabinet. And the yeah. whole premise of this is that the filing cabinet is this very um, – Oh, your filing cabinet is not going to fall over. It's a sturdy piece of equipment because it's built like a skyscraper. Um, and in another um, ad that goes, another image that goes um, with both the, both the images we talked about, a man is doing something that's almost like a, um, a, a push-up, I guess, um, again, on an open filing cabinet drawer, um, and the drawer isn't falling down. And the men doing these are dressed in suits, right? And And I think... What's happening here, and again, you you were alluded. I think this is what you were um, getting to in your question, is that so this ad is set up, and on its surface, it's an ad. Well, it's designed or intended, I should say, to be an ad to showcase the strength of filing cabinets and particularly drawers and drawer slides. But really, I, I don't think it takes too much for. Um, a, a 21st century scholar, particularly one versed in in, in, in um, ideas about gender and the representation of gender, to see that this ad really speaks to a lot of anxiety around the arrival of women into the office and what this meant for what was previously a dom- predominantly male workplace, what this meant for the male workers who were there. And so I, I see in these ads that really stress the athletic ability of these males, um, a, a sense that they, that they have not become feminized by the appearance of women in, in the office, right? That rather they mm-hmm. are still these athletic, you know, man, manly men. Right, who can, if need be, work out on a filing cabinet in their nice suit? <laughs> yeah, it's it, the, the the images are really wild. But to like sort of take this a little further and think about, you know, not just so in some ways these reconfigurations of the office um, with the influx of women uh, to the workplace also seemed to either blur the boundaries uh, between work and home or spill over in some ways into how domestic spaces were organized or expected to be organized as well. And you talk about this a little bit in the book, and I found that quite surprising because I think of the filing cabinet as as so much a, you know, a, a, a furniture of, of the place of employment. And I was curious if you could talk a little bit about how the, the, the you know, this, this process of organization spilled into uh, the organization of the home. Yeah, thanks. Um, yeah, this is one of my favorite parts of the book too, because it's something that I didn't anticipate when um, I began researching into the filing cabinet, because I think like you, I was very much focused on the office. And and what I developed, uh, what I discovered, um, partly through my research, but also when I discovered the research of a, of Mary, a scholar named Marianne Beecher, um, who unfortunately, who her work is largely exists in her dissertation. It was it was never published um, in articles or as a book. But what we see here is that, in the language of my my argument, the cabinet logic, right, the organisation of the filing cabinet, 
gets moved out of the office into the home, not really through the filing cabinet. There, there, you know, there are some filing cabinets making it into homes, but the logic mm-hmm. of the filing cabinet gets into the home through closets and kitchen cabinets. It gets into the home through the storage spaces, right, of the home, um, and it brings with it, right, these changes in the storage um, organization of closets and kitchen cabinets brings with it all these ideas of productivity and efficiency that we've been talking about. Um, And this is all happening in the early 20th century um, when storage space is rethought or the or the space of storage in the home becomes thought of in terms of the rationalization of space, right? So again, what's going on is this idea that saving time, productivity, efficiency is really key in the home. And so this also becomes particularly important as bungalows are built and your kitchen is only 120 square foot, or if you're living in an, in an apartment building um, in a city. And so what happens is that The closets, for example, and kitchen cabinets, but closets, which sort of used to be an afterthought in the home, suddenly become very clearly defined. And in some ways, as I was looking at these articles on closets and kitchen cabinets and Better Home and Gardens and Ladies Home Journal and House Beautiful, it was almost like reading an IKEA catalogue. Right. Like this desire, you know, the way in which space is suddenly divided up and space is shaped so that particular objects can easily fit in it. So you you'll you'll in your closet, you'll make sure that there is a space where you can store boxes for your hats or there'll be long drawers for your skirts or short um or um, short drawers for shorter skirts or boxes or pigeonholes for shoes. I mean, obviously, the, the target here is is a woman, right, and, and the right. organization of a closet for a woman. Um, and then kitchen cabinets, right, the discovery that older drawers were too deep. You couldn't pull things out from them. So what do you do? You divide drawers into sections to group related items together, and you do the same thing for shelves in cupboards, right, which could be made removable or stepped or sliding, and you even had upright partitions so plates could be stored on their side. And, you know, they were referred to in articles and advertisements that you could now file your plates, right? And so, again, in these ads, and just more generally, ads accompanying these new kitchen cabinets, it would say the business of getting meals or the kitchen needs to be business-like, right? So it's through this way, not through the filing cabinet itself, but through the logic of storage that the filing cabinet encapsulates that came out of the commercial needs of efficiency and information, that logic gets into um, the home. So again, back to what I said earlier, you know, this is just another example of how storage is not neutral, right? That these storage technologies make the values of corporate capitalism common sense in every day, right? It makes productivity critical to how women's work in the home is understood. And here I also want to give a shout out to the work of Melissa Gregg, um, who in her recent book, Counterproductive, she offers a, a history of productivity and she makes um, sort of similar arguments to, um, to this as well to really make us think about the ways in which in the ways in which the home is rethought as a site of, um, of productivity. Yes, absolutely. Like all of this discussion is reminding me of, um, you know, so the, the Frankfurt kitchen and the ways in which 
you know, the, there are these plans drawn out to sort of think about, you know, how many steps must um, s- uh, someone who is cooking take between the 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 sink and the the cooker and things like that. And how can you sort of reduce that so that cooking can happen much faster instead of all of these um, sort of tailorist uh, innovations, if you will, that are happening to to streamline the kitchen, to to work in some ways like the office. And it hadn't really occurred to me to think about the the parallels between the ways in which the filing cabinet is uh, set up in the ways it sort of divides up space in the ways in which, say, the Frankfurt kitchen, like these sort of high efficiency kitchens are set up to to divide up space in very specific kinds of ways. Um, I'm going to move on a little bit, well, into, in or rather dive more into this question of dividing things up in in sort of almost fanatic, in an almost fanatic manner. Uh, but before I do, I just wanted to call attention to the way in which you organize visually your book with these little tabs that you include at the top of each page, um, which denote the, the chapter and the section. And uh, I really liked that sort of um, visual punnery, if you will, because you talk a great deal about the file cabinet's logics of dividing, of partitioning, assisted very much by the design of tabs and folders and things like that to make information retrieval more efficient. And so we, we we often think of these divisions as logical and even neutral, but as you see, they are absolutely not. They have a very particular politics of power. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about the kinds of values that shaped these types of partitioning uh, that sort of shape how labor is performed and and if you could maybe extrapolate a bit uh, talk a little bit about how these paper-based systems of partitioning of division of um uh, of, of controlling if you will have left traces in our current digital workspaces well yeah i'm, I'm really glad you um you like the tabs that are uh occur at the top of each page, but I actually can't take any credit for that. So I want to thank the University of Minnesota Press um, design team um, for coming up with that. I was really happy when I saw the page proofs Um, and there they were. And also just, you know, the um, press as a whole for okaying so many images in the book Mm -hmm. and then ensuring that they were reproduced really well and really clearly because some of these images are you know 19th century early 20th century they're not from great sources many of them I acquired from eBay um you know well-worn pages so um yeah big shout out to the University of Minnesota Press for making the book um look so good um so yeah uh most of my answers, as you said, have alluded to this logic of partitioning, of grouping similar things together. And I've argued that this defines the filing cabinet and it's what I call, it introduces what I call a very particular version or a very 20th century version um, of a cabinet logic. Um, and just to sort of reiterate, we I've sort of talked around this, but the tabbed manila folder and the tabbed guide cards are, are really critical to this, right? I mean, they the manila folder is a development of the file, right? And the file, I think, is usefully thought of as a technology of gathering, right? Mm-hmm. And so what the manila folder does, though, um, it, it, it gathers things together, but it in a way in which through the tab, there is no need for a separate index, right? Because it used to be that you might have papers stored in various things that were called files, but the index if there was one, um, was written up in a separate book and right. so that, or in a, or in a separate 
place. So that so the tabs become very very important in in um, in making what ad advertisers called a filing cabinet having an automatic index and all they meant by that was that the the index was in the drawer the index was in was in the cabinet itself um and this also what we see also here is that visibility becomes equated with accessibility so another very common phrase from ads is, is that information is available at a glance mm-hmm. right um so retrieval is the key so what we're seeing here in the office is which then gets pushed out to the home, as we were talking about um, a moment ago, storage becomes redefined as a problem of retrieval. And that gets us, of course, back to efficiency, right, where saving time becomes incredibly important because storage can often just be about saving space, right? Like, I mean, sorry, storage can just be about space, right, an issue of space. I put something here in a space of storage. Um, Now... um, what happens with retrieval is retrieval, of course, moves the issue away from thinking about space to thinking about time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the way we save time, according to the inventors of the filing cabinet, right, is through this idea of giving everything a particular place and making that place visible. Um, and to really try and capture the values that that, that are driving this, the economic values that are driving this, I talk about this thing that I call granular certainty. And um, in a most general sense, granular certainty to me is the drive in the early 20th century to break more and more of life and its everyday routines into discrete, observable and manageable parts. So the logic here, and as you said, the logic here coming and to many of us um, who have looked at this period through the writings of Frederick Taylor, right, the, the sort of logic here is the granular idea is you're breaking something down into small parts to produce a high degree of detail or specificity. And the certainty part is the idea, the belief that the great greater specificity reduces individual discretion and therefore increases the likelihood that the task will be completed efficiently. Right, So the filing cabinet therefore becomes a way in which this logic of granular certainty is instantiated, right? And so what I find interesting here is that there's an overlap between efficiency's embrace of standardization and the conception of information as something discrete in particular, right? So, you know, the need for the demands of efficiency and productivity mean you need information but the information that you're getting, the information that, uh, the, or the form that the information is taking, is also itself a product of efficiency and granular certainty. So we get the tabs, we get the specific, the specificity, the particularity, right? That gets labeled information, right? This, this, when knowledge becomes defined in such an instrumental way, that particular bit of knowledge that increasing at least in the um, business world is called information yeah um, and you know it, it because it's become so commonplace it's uh, it's interesting to think of the the ways in which tabs themselves tabs manila folders and the filing cabinet uh, become these um, technologies for as you as you say i don't know whether this is your term term or whether it's their terms of of 
automatic indexing. It seems I think this was their term of, of yes, automatic yep. um, of, of automatic indexing of, of sort of making of trying to say that visibility equals accessibility and then that that can be extrapolated into increased efficiency. Uh, and you you take this even further to say to talk about how um, these these various technologies are seen both materially and metaphorically to enhance or stand in for human memory itself. Could you um, uh, tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, another favorite part of my book, I guess. <laughs> it's all it's all good. It's all my favorite. No, it is all um, great. Yes. <laughs> um, but yeah, I and the I to start to think about the way that the filing, so the filing cabinet is marketed as an automatic index, but it's also marketed um, as providing, as having an automatic memory, right? Creating a memory for the office and that memory is automatic. And this actually gets us back to the gendered labor of filing, right? And the, and the point that I was making earlier that, you know, women can grasp paper, right? They can handle paper, but they don't, they're not expected to grasp to understand its contents, right? And so this is because mm-hmm. the filing cabinet does all the thinking, right? And more specifically, it remembers the location of a particular piece of paper. So it's in this context that it's referred to as the memory of the office or the automatic memory of the office. And here, the argument that's put forward um, within the literature and within the advertisements is that... Um, human memory or personal memory is not, can no longer be depended on because of the scale of the modern office. So here again, the modern office is always understood in this literature as the office of a corporation, right? Even though actually in the United States through the 1920s, 30s, and 40s, the average office size was under 25, right? But the technologies were under, I'm sorry, employed less than 25 people. Um, but the technologies they were using came out of this logic, this idea that all offices were large. And so within the filing cabinet, it's the with the filing cabinet, the idea is the office has become too large for any one individual to remember everything that is going on within it, right? So therefore, the filing cabinet is presented as extending human memory to the scale of modern, the scale required of modern capitalism. Um, and so here, it's extending, right, or in developing the um, long history of the idea of memory as a storehouse. Right, that that mm-hmm. what that memory is all about storing impressions in discrete sp- spaces of the brain. Like it, the idea of the brain cell, right, comes from the Latin cella. Sure, I'm mispronouncing it, which means storeroom, right? But it also could refer to dovecots and compartments that bees make for honey, right? But it's all about the way in which memory has always been understood, right, through this idea of storing it, but storing it within discrete spaces, right? So memory becomes an idea of recollection. You're not learning by rote, but you're learning in early modern Europe by thinking through making connections, right? So it's this this history of the understanding of memory that the filing cabinet um, is, is, is developing or picking up on at least in its marketing, right? And so it's an automatic memory because the filing cabinet itself is also positioned as a machine. So within the business imagination of the early 20th century, all business is a machine, 
right? So the filing cabinet becomes a machine. So you call it automatic to emphasize that, right? Um, right. And to emphasize that the memory that it brings is a, is based on precision, consistency, speed, and reliability. And you do that within a file cabinet drawer by subdividing the alphabet into sometimes hundreds of subdivisions, right? Two, three letter subdivisions, all so that you can look and find with ease, right? And without really thinking, without having to know anything other than the alphabet, right? You can (laughs) find the particular piece of paper that you're looking for. Yeah, and it seems it, it one thing you caution against as you as you talk about this this question of um, automatic indexing, automatic memory, is that it seems as though the filing cabinet is opening up this whole new world of information retrieval, and the possibilities are endless. But you also caution and talk about some of the constraints or limitations that in that it enforced that still shape how labor is performed today. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit. Um, I realized I asked a question about uh, how these paper-based systems may have left traces in our current digital workspaces. And I wondered if you could either talk about that a little bit or uh, maybe to put this question differently, talk about how, you know, unpacking the, the question of storage capabilities of filing cabinets has changed how you yourself see processes of labor and work of information storage, retrieval, uh, or how office spaces themselves have come to be organized. You know, maybe what kinds of things have changed for you uh, along the course of of doing this research? Yeah, thanks for um, bringing us back to the question um, you asked earlier about the traces of this within the 20th century. Because I think I got a little bit carried away um, <laughs> with uh, with with my historical um, answer there. So yeah, I mean, obviously, one of the things that makes the filing cabinet, I think, an interesting object for us to think about and to think about the idea that storage is not neutral is the fact that even though we've moved increasingly away from paper as the basis for where information is um, recorded and stored and circulated, um, we still use these paper-based metaphors um, to think about how to organize paper, right? So as I think you alluded to in your earlier question, right, we still talk about tabs. We still talk about files. We used to, for a long time, have, you know, manila folder icons um, on our desktops. And in the very, in the 1980s and 1990s, um, the filing cabinet itself, um, you know, was was an icon um, as a document folder. And as of course was, and we still have as, as like, um, we saw for our trash when we trash something on our desktop we throw it into a waste paper basket which you know people often still refer to today as their round filing cabinet um and so um so these things like so these ideas are still there and i think that it's fascinating for us to or important for us to acknowledge right going back to the vertical history argument that that these concepts right of of the file and then the way we think are asked to think about and approach information through the file come out of particular historical moments and bring with them particular historical values. And they all also, I think, and this is, I think what you were, what you've, you were also getting at um, in, in the, with this question, right? Is the way in which that can limit how we actually think about information. And um, there have been many critics, right? Of, 
of the use of um, paper-based metaphors to think about digital um, digital information, right? And, um, mm-hmm. and 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 one of the more famous quotes is like, you know, to um, to continue to use the file to think about um, digital information, you know, is like cutting the wings off a seven forty seven and using it as a bus to drive down a freeway, <laughs> right? You know that these. And the, yeah, that comes from Ted Nelson, right? Who 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 was one of the founding fathers of hypertext, right? But I mean, I think that's a great quote because it does capture and and really and really um, make us think about. Well, yeah, do we? Why do we use these things? Because it it encourages us to not see connections. It encourages us to, in some ways, to dismiss or deny the messiness of the world, right? right. The messiness of knowledge, um, and it pushes us towards that kind of knowledge, that kind of information, which we can look at with certainty. So I think that, you know, that's one of the things that I I, I sort of, it was one of the reasons as I started to really dig into the filing cabinet, I wanted to think about, right? And I wanted to, or I was thinking about, but it really did, as I did the research, I really started to the significance of that, the limitations of that way of thinking really started to um, become very clear to me. Yeah. Um, and one thing I was thinking about, I realized that I've taken a lot of your, uh, a lot of your time. So oh, I it's been great. Right. No, no, it's, it's all good. <laughs> it's, um, you know, sort of maybe coming back to the very first question I was asking you, I was, I was wondering if there was anything uh, in doing this research that may have set you on uh, another train of thought from another journey. And I wondered what you might be working on now and or what, what is next for you? Well, yeah, um, <laughs> this book took a long time to write. Um, and I can imagine long- it's, it's very rich. Thank you. Uh, Longer than I anticipated. So on the way, I've collected um, a lot of ideas um, for articles that have been put to one side. So I guess in the spirit of, you know, I'm not, I'm not leaving behind this project in the sense that I have a lot of discrete, you know, standalone articles that I, that I'm thinking about working on rather than diving back into trying to write another big um, a big monograph. Um, so I've just actually, um, f- and it's really nice, right, to complete, yeah. to be start and finish uh, a project, right, and ha- have it happen within a maybe even a matter of months. So I, I just actually completed an article um, with a book historian, Deidre Lynch, about holes and holes and paper. And this, you know, it picks up something that I touch on briefly in this book, which is about the emergence of loose leaf ledges and ring binders, right? Which are, of course, another way to oh, store another way to store paper. And Deidre's got uh, uh, some um, a really fascinating argument about the use of pins to um, the way holes oh. were created in paper to attach paper and other objects, right, to the pages right, of right. books. So we've written up something about um, holes in paper. So that's great. And there are other arguments like that or or ideas that didn't make it into the book or or um, or just weren't quite good fits for the book that I, I would like to pursue. And then there are just other things that actually – going back to your very first question, um, you know, gets me back to identification documents. Um, right. I, I, I really want to revisit um, something that I didn't really talk about in the book on the filing cabinet for reasons now that seem kind of, Im- sorry, the book on the passport that seemed kind of embarrassing, but that's when gen- to talk about when gender was added as an identification category to U.S. passports, um, which actually, spoiler, um, 
at least to me, in the history of the passport, was surprisingly late, which was in the 1970s. So, you know, well, I have a lot of interesting. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's uh, yeah, there's a whole other um, <laughs> podcast about that one. Um, but um, so therefore, I think I have in that sense, I have enough to keep me occupied um, for the next couple of years, I hope. And um, maybe <laughs> in that time, a book length project might emerge, but I'm more than happy to work on, as I said, these sort of shorter, more discreet um, projects. And I'm looking forward to seeing them as they emerge. Uh, thank you so much uh, for taking the time to talk about this book and, and your future projects with me. And and I wondered for those of um, those of our listeners who are interested in learning more, where can they find you? Where can they follow you and, and learn more about your work? Okay, yeah. Um, so I I'm on Twitter. I'm not a I'm not a big Twitter tweeter, but I'm on there at um it's at at Craig two the numeral two Robertson. And then I finally got around to um, creating my own website and that's available. That's at craigrobertsonfiles.net. So those are two places where people can um, follow um, what I'm doing. And so, yeah, no, this, this is, I just want to say this has been a really um, great conversation. I really appreciate um, your questions because which show that you clearly took a lot of time um, with reading this book. So yeah, this has been oh, a no, lot of it was fun. A pleasure. Um, thank, thank you so much. And thank you. I really enjoyed this conversation and it really made me think about well, verticality, first of all. Um, but even, you know, questions of furniture and the way they shape space in ways that I hadn't taken into account before. So thank you again for making the time to be with us on this podcast. Um, thank you very much and have a wonderful day. Thank you. This discussion of The Filing Cabinet, A Vertical History of Information, published by the University of Minnesota Press in 2021, was brought to you by the New Books and Architecture channel of the New Books Network. Make sure to subscribe to our channel wherever you get your podcasts.